The Lord has given us such an incredible spirit of worship, uh, both in the summit service that I got to share with just a moment ago, and now here in the celebration service. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to give you an update. Ordinarily, uh, we wouldn't take sermon time for this, but I shared something with you last week, and I wanted to update you on that. Uh, last week, I told you we were very close uh, to meeting our budget for 2020. And so if you don't know how this works, we, we have a budget here at the church, and that governs how we spend so that we can be good stewards of the gifts that you give. Uh, but with COVID and all of the complexities and all of the difficulties that that has brought to our church and every other church, we just weren't sure at the end of the year that we would be able to meet our anticipated budget. Last week, we were so close. So I wanted to give you an update. Now that we have opened all of the mail from the holidays and they've done all the tally work, I want to announce to you that you met and exceeded the 2020 budget. Now that's just... Phenomenal, especially in a year like the year that we've experienced. And I believe that that reminds us. I believe it's an encouragement, maybe an affirmation, that God is doing a special work here. And I am so excited about 2021, what the Lord has for us, some of the plans that we're going to be able to talk to you about in the next few weeks. I believe this could be one of our best years yet. I am excited, and I believe the Lord has provided but something else happened last week that I wanted to share with you. After we had met, because of your faithfulness and, and the Lord's generosity, after we had met our 2020 budget, then someone gave us a gift of $1,500,000. And so, absolutely, we can thank the Lord for that. Wasn't expected, wasn't something that we could have anticipated, just the goodness, the kindness of the Lord. Now, you have to be careful if you, when you begin to draw direct lines between something that happened in the past and then something that happens in the present or in the future, uh, but, but let me do that for a moment. I believe in the middle of COVID, when churches uh, face so much uncertainty and so many uh, ministry and mission organizations were struggling financially and you stepped forward and you collected, you gave $250,000, not for us to spend here, not to meet our needs, but to just give it away to other uh, ministries and other mission organizations that were struggling because of COVID. I believe the generosity and the selflessness you showed then has been honored by the Lord in the last few days. And that's just, just how our Lord works. And he honors selflessness and generosity in our, in our lives, and he does so in our church. And it's just good to serve the Lord and to be reminded of that uh, here in the last few days. Well, we're in Revelation chapter 2. I do want to welcome those that are worshiping in here in Summit, those that are worshiping online and on television uh, I, I'm excited about the message today. We began last week to walk through these seven letters that Jesus has given to these seven churches, literal churches in Asia Minor, uh, right at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And so we looked at the first one last week. We'll look at the second one 
this week. Now, I think they were asking, the church we're going to look at today, by the way, is the church at Smyrna. I believe that they were asking in Smyrna, they were asking their pastor some of the same things that many of you are asking your pastor today. Some hard questions, some impossible questions. Uh, so what do we do? How do we answer questions when it seems like the whole world is coming apart at the seams? Uh, wh wh what do we do? How do we answer questions when it seems like our faith, the things that we believe in so dearly, are just being maligned and slandered and rejected by everybody around us? What do we do when people call our faith outdated, hate-filled, ignorant, bigoted, what do we do when we're fearful of the future, when we're fearful that we might lose freedom or lose liberty, when we're fearful of what world our children, our grandchildren will grow up in? What do we do? How do we answer those questions? How can we have confidence? How can we know that God is in control? Well, this letter, just four verses, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, answers that question. Uh, they were going through something very similar in Smyrna. I'll show you that in a moment from these verses. Uh, and, and the Lord speaks to them and answers their question. And by doing that, he answers our question as well. So we're going to see the Lord's answer. And then at the end, I want you to see the pastor's answer. Uh, because the Lord answers, but then the pastor also, the pastor of the church at Smyrna, also answered this question in a powerful way. And... Um, I want you to see both of those things. So look with me. Revelation chapter 2, let's just read. It says, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now we'll stop there. Just to remind you where we are, seven letters to seven churches. Um, these churches are in Turkey, what we would call Turkey today. This is a letter to the church at Smyrna, about 40 miles north of Ephesus, where where we were looking last week. Smyrna was a, a large city in, in that day. It's an even larger city today. It's still there. In fact, it's a, it's a city today about twice the size of Dallas, a, a big city in that part of the world. And, and, and so Smyrna, what's most interesting about it is it was the center of emperor worship. In those days, in the Roman Empire, you were required to worship the emperor. You were required to say, Caesar is Lord. And you had to bow to that, to that world and to that culture. And if you did not, uh, then you faced uh, severe consequences. And the, and the focal point, the center of that emperor worship, right here in, in Smyrna. You notice right at the beginning of this letter, the salutation, it says, write to the angel of the church at Smyrna. I told you we'd come back to that word angel this week. Uh, the Greek word for angel, if you're curious, is angel. It's just the same word. That is a Greek word. And, and it's a word that means messenger. Sometimes it refers to a supernatural messenger. That's ordinarily what we think of when we think of angel. Uh, but oftentimes in the Bible, it just refers to a messenger. And in this case, he's going to talk about the angel of each of these seven churches. In this case, he's talking about the pastor of the church. I wanted to read to you what Adrian Rogers had to say. That's a name some of you will know, some of you perhaps not, uh, but a great Bible teacher of a generation ago. L listen to how he explained this. He said, when the Bible speaks of angel, the angel of that church, it uses the word angel, even in the Greek, 
which means messenger. It literally means, he says, to the pastor of the church. The pastor is the messenger to the church. Angels are God's messengers, but not only are supernatural people angels, that's what we ordinarily think of, but natural people may be angels as well. Every church, he writes, is supposed to have an angel, a messenger, the pastor of the church. Now, nobody has ever mistaken me for an angel, <laughs> but, but what we need to see here is that the pastor has a responsibility to be the messenger to the church. Now, what message should the pastor bring? Well, he should bring the message that came from Christ. That's what happens here, Revelation 2, the letter is written, it's from Christ, it's given to the pastor. The pastor brings not his own message, but he brings the message that has been given from Christ. I'm a pastor today. What's my role? What's my task? Same task, to be the messenger of the Lord. Well, what's the message? It's not my message. I, I, don't, I don't sit around each week and think, what would I like the people to know? What, what point would I like to make? But I'm to bring the message that came from Christ. So to the angel of the church uh, in Smyrna. Let's continue to read verse 8. He says, thus says, the first and the last, the one who has died, the one who was dead, uh, and who, is, who has come to life. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but let me just bring your attention to something. There are seven letters, as we've said, and in the beginning of each of these letters, Jesus describes himself, but he describes himself with different words in each letter. One of the most profitable things you could do this week is one day in your morning devotion time, when you're reading the Bible, turn over here to Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 and find the seven descriptions of Jesus. Jesus' self-descriptions. This is how he, how he describes himself. And it'll just take you a minute or two. Read through these seven descriptions and think about, pray about, what does that teach us about the wonder of Jesus? What does that tell us that is praiseworthy about Jesus? And spending some time doing that will, I promise, uh, bring spiritual encouragement to your heart. Well, let's continue to read verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. Now, that seems odd. He says, you're poor, but you're rich. We'll need to come back to that. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. What is a synagogue of Satan? Anytime a religious organization, a church or any other kind of organization, religious organization presents a message other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that religious organization, church, call it what you will, it is a synagogue of Satan. Churches, religious organizations are either going to present Jesus as Lord and the gospel of Jesus Christ, or they're going to be a synagogue of Satan. And that's what's referenced here. Verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses. If you're going to underline a verse in Revelation 2, this is the one I recommend. One of my favorite verses to go to when life is hard, when I'm disappointed or even angry. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you will, be, you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that. That's, that's worth some focus. Let's finish up verse 11. Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, listen, this is important. 
The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So here's a church that's going through really, really tough times. Let me just show you the highlight of some of those. We'll, we'll look back at these four verses. And you'll notice, first of all, that the Christians in Smyrna experienced affliction and poverty. Do you see that right at the beginning of verse 9? I know, that you're, I know about your affliction and your poverty. They were poor. Now, what's important, I think, to note there is that the Bible never promises believers that they will live a trouble-free life. Do you know that? In fact, Jesus said we shouldn't be surprised when we face hardship. I think sometimes today, Christians are surprised. I think some Christians who are reaching out to me, and I, and I appreciate their heart and their spirit and their trust in the Lord, but I think sometimes, why are we surprised that there are hardships? These Christians faced hardships. They experienced affliction and poverty. The second thing I want you to see about these is, is that they were slandered and their message was maligned. Do you see that? Well, the end of verse 9, he says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews. To, to be a Christian in Smyrna was, was to be a person whose beliefs were despised by the culture. What these Christians in Smyrna believed, the rest of the people in Smyrna, they thought that they were crazy. They thought they were bigoted. They believed things that everybody else rejected. And I think that's more and more true right here in America. We're living in America as Christians. Our, oft, our beliefs are often mischaracterized. They're dismissed. What we believe about marriage and family is, is ridiculed by the world. What we believe about how to raise godly children is rejected by the world. Uh, what we believe about how to have healthy marriages, what we believe about right and wrong is dismissed by our culture. The gospel, the gospel is so twisted and it has been so slandered that most of the world, and honestly, I think sometimes many churches just don't understand the gospel of Christ. It seems to me like there's, there's, there's really two different views of the gospel, two, two predominant views in America, and both of them are wrong. Some people just dismiss it. Some people just say the Bible is not reliable, God is not real, sin is not consequential. What, 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 whatever their, their perspective is, they just dismiss it. But then all the way on the other end, you have people, even churches, who say, you better straighten up, you better live right, or you're going to hell. I, I see it sometimes even on the marquees of churches. You know, turn or burn. That, that, that if, we, if we don't follow more of the rules, then we're going to be separated from God. And, and so we know as a gospel church that, that neither one of those represent the true gospel. Certainly, we need to follow the rules. We're all following the rules is very important. And, and it's an indication of our heart. But that's not the gospel. We live in a world where the gospel is slandered just like it was in, in Smyrna. The next thing you notice about these Christians is that they feared the future. They feared especially the loss of liberty and freedom. You see this in verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison. And that's the ultimate loss of freedom and, and liberty. And they feared losing their lives. In the middle of verse 10, he says, some of you even will die. Be faithful to the point of, of death. So what do we say what would Jesus say to Christians in Smyrna uh, who are struggling to live for their faith at the beginning of the second century? 
And what would Jesus say to Christians today in America who are struggling to live for their faith at the beginning of the second millennium? It just seems like the whole scenario, the, the, the Smyrna scenario, is right here, right here in our country, right here in our city today. So what does Christ say? Well, we see the answer in these four verses, and we're going to go through them meticulously in a moment. But let me, let me just give it to you in a sentence, okay? I'm just going to give you, actually, it's two or three sentences. You know how pastors count things. But, but, but let me give it to you in a sentence, and then we'll look to Scripture. And I want you to see how this sentence just really expresses, expresses the, the verses that we've read. So here's the sentence. It's the answer to the question. It's Jesus' answer to the question, what do you do when life seems to be coming apart at the seams? Here's Jesus' answer. I know about your suffering. I know about your fears. Trust me, I am in control. The truth is, you are a lot better off than you think. The sufferings and the fears won't last much longer. And when you get here, I have something for you. Now, listen to that again, because I, I want this to give you encouragement. I want this to give you peace when you see it rooted in these verses. So listen, Jesus says, I know you're suffering and I know your fears. He says, trust me, I'm in control. And the truth is, you're much better off than you think. This suffering and these fears won't last much longer. But when you get to me, I have something for you. Now, let me show you that. I'm excited about this. Let me show you that in these four verses. So the first part of that, I know your suffering and I know your fears. Church, a lot of, a lot of fear today. I, I know that if somebody calls me with a question or, or, or a comment, that oftentimes that one person represents 10 or 12 or 15 that won't call and, and, and so if that's the case, I know that many people in our church and our community are fearful right now. So what does Jesus say? He says, I know. You, you see it right here at the beginning of verse 9. I know your affliction. And then go down a few words. He says, I know the slander that, uh, that you experience. Last week, one of my uh, daughters uh, reached out to me. She was having a bad day. You ever have bad days? Uh, she was having a bad day. She was hurting. She was struggling. And there really was nothing I could do. Uh, fathers, you perhaps know that helpless feeling. There was nothing I could do to fix it. But the truth is, she wasn't asking me to do anything. She was not asking me for advice. She told me that at the beginning <laughs> of the talk. She was not asking for money. She was not asking me to find her a mechanic or a doctor. I mean, it seems like that's what daddy is. I can give you money. I can find a mechanic. I can call a doctor. She didn't want any of those things. She just wanted me to know. Why do you think she did that? Because sometimes when things are hard, when we're fearful, it gives us peace just to know that the people who know us and love us the most, that they know. There are questions that you could ask today about what's going on or your fear, what's going to happen next. I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, and nobody does. 
But I know this, he knows your fears. He knows your pain. He knows your, your, your agony. When your marriage is struggling and nobody else knows, he knows. When the doctor report is not good, he knows. When your dreams are crushed, he knows. When, when it seems like the world has rejected everything you know to be true, he knows. When you fear for the direction of our country, he knows. When you fear for the direction that your children or grandchildren are going, he knows. I think that's the, that's the first part of the answer. And in one way, this is the smallest part of the answer. We're going to build as we go. But, but in one sense, this is the best part of the answer. My heavenly father knows. So let's go to the second one. Trust me, he says, I am in control. So look back at verse 8. Write to the church in Smyrna, thus says, and he describes himself two ways. He says the first and the last, Jesus is the first and the last, and he's the one who was dead and came to life. What does that mean? Well, he's the first and the last. He was here first, he'll be here in the end. He was here before it started, he'll be here when it's all over. He's the first and the last, he's in control. Nothing is gonna change, nothing is gonna hurt him, nothing is gonna throw him from his throne. He was here in the first, he'll be here in the end. And he says, I was dead and I came back to life. He reminds us, no enemy is greater than me. No enemy will ever conquer our Lord. He was dead. He faced the greatest enemy and he came to life again. And then if you go down verse 10 into verse 10, we'll come back to this phrase in a moment, but I just want to point it out. He says, your affliction will last 10 days. Now scholars you know, debate whether that's symbolic or not. Does it mean 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 persecutions? And, and, and I don't know. I tend to just think things are literal unless there's a reason uh, to not think that. But the point here is Jesus knew when the hardship started what day it would end. He's in control. He's, he, he is over everything. Christ is in control. We may not know what will happen. We may not know the future, but we do know that if I face a hardship, that hardship will not last one minute longer than God can use it to bring glory and honor to him. I may have some bad days, but I will never have a day so bad that God can't use it for his purposes. While some things may seem senseless to me, I know that God can make sense of everything. The Bible says, Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is in control. Number three, the truth is you are much better off than you think. Now you see this in verse nine. It's puzzling because he says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. How could they be impoverished and rich at the same time. And, and what makes this even more uh, of a contrast is that the original word here for, for poverty is a word that means abject poverty. You know, if you're poor, that means you can't pay your bills. But if you're dirt poor, that means you don't know how you're going to eat. These people were dirt poor. But Jesus says they're rich. Now, how could that be? Well, let me teach you something that the Bible really throughout its pages teaches, something that, that'll, that'll help all of us to realize that we're probably a lot better off than we think. 
What does it mean to be rich? There is, first of all, rich 1.0, okay? So in my mind, rich 1.0 is that you have a lot of stuff, right? You've got some money in the bank. You've got a retirement that's fully funded. You've got a fancy car and a pretty house, and, and you've got a lot of stuff, rich 1.0. And, and often that's, that becomes the most important thing in people's lives. They, they want to be rich. They want to be rich with stuff, rich 1.0. Especially younger people tend to just live. This is, this is what they aspire toward. I want to be rich. And they mean rich 1.0. But there's something better than rich 1.0. Let me tell you about rich 2.0. Do you know what that is? That is when you understand, when you, when you enjoy the riches of having family and friends close to you, that they love you and you love them and they encourage you and you spend time together. That's rich 2.0. And, and, and some people get to that. Many people, in fact, get to that. And, and, and they understand that, that, that stuff may have some value, but even more important than my bank account is my family. It's my marriage. It's my kids. It's my, it's my friends, my spiritual friends. That can, is more important than, than the wealth that could be measured at the bank. That is rich 2.0. Uh, a lot of people never get here. It seems that more people get here later in life than than are at the rich 2.0 earlier in life. I guess we get smarter as we go. Rich 2.0 is great, but listen, there's something even better than that. Rich 3.0, you know what that means? That means your sins are forgiven and you have been adopted into the family of God and you are a child of God and will be a child of God forever and ever and ever. That he will allow nothing to come between him and you. And that he loves you and he, he is yours and you are his. That you will forever have this relationship with him. That's rich 3.0. And listen, rich 3.0 beats rich 1.0 and it re beats rich 2.0. That's the kind of rich that we want to be. Now, I hope you're all three. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being all three, right? But, but rich 3.0, nothing compares to that. Let me tell you some of its advantages. First of all, rich 3.0 is permanent. Rich 1.0 is not permanent. I have sat with people through the years uh, that have lost it all. And I have, uh, I've, I've sat with people who just grieved that. Because rich 1.0 is, is temporal, even rich 2.0 can be temporal, right? People die. Relationships fail. I've sat with people who have lost their family, lost their friends. And you, and you see then very often the difference between how Christians grieve and how the world grieves. Because if your whole life is about rich 1.0 or your whole life is about rich 1 and 2.0 and you lose it, then there's nothing. There's nothing. But rich 3.0 will never go away. Nothing can take it away. Nobody can take it away. You can rest in that. It is forever. Another advantage to rich 3.0 is you are made for rich 3.0. You know, there's a satisfaction that comes from rich 1.0. If you have some 
uh, you know, some, some wealth or some security. There's some satisfaction that comes with that. We can't deny that. And, and, and there's certainly a satisfaction from having family and friends around you. Absolutely. But what we have been made for, what will most satisfy us is rich 3.0, is that fellowship, that unbreakable fellowship with God. Now, let's think about these Christians in Smyrna. None of them were rich 1.0. We've already seen that. They were filled with poverty. And they were losing rich 2.0 because of the, because of the laws and, and the people uh, who were being arrested because of their faith. And some of those people would deny their faith when they got arrested and that they would be, uh, they would be separated from the Christian community. Others wouldn't deny the faith and they would be executed on the spot. And so the, the Christians, they were losing their, their Christian brothers and sisters. They were even losing people in their family. So these Christians did not have rich 1.0 and they were losing rich 2.0. But Jesus said, you're rich because you have rich 3.0. And that's the one that counts. You, if you're a child of God, you are better off than you think. Let's quit just just going through life saying, woe is me and life is hard and look what I saw on the news and look what's happening at work and look what the people on my street believe and, and, and look at all these troubles around me. Yeah, they're all kind of troubles, but I am rich. I am rich. And if you're a child of God, you're rich. You're rich. Now, let me take you to number four. The suffering and the fears won't last much longer. So you see that, we've looked at it a couple of times, right there near the end of verse 10, he says the affliction will last only 10 days, 10 days. Uh, I'm sure I've worn out this illustration, but, but let me just ask you, is it worth an eight hour car ride with kids to spend a week on the beach? It is. Now you wouldn't just put the kids in the car and drive around for eight hours and go home, that would drive you crazy. But it's worth it if you're going to the beach for a week? Would it be worth it to, to have a six-hour plane ride to go to Hawaii? I've never been to Hawaii, but, but, but if all I had to do to get to Hawaii was, was to ride on an airplane for six hours, it would be worth it. Men, be honest. Is it worth six months of planning and 30 minutes of a ceremony to be married, right? I mean, none of us would have signed up for that, right? We don't just want to go through that voluntarily, but it's worth it to be married. So what does he say here? He says, it's bad. That's what he tells Smyrna. He says, it's bad. And he tells them, it may get worse, but it's only going to last 10 days. He, he, and I don't know if 10 days meant 10 weeks or 10 months, or I think it meant 10 days, but but the point is, it's just going to last a little while. And there's already a date certain where it will end. And no, no matter how difficult, no matter how dark the times may be, it's just a little while. So let me tell you why I'm not often a very good counselor. And I'll get in trouble for saying this, but uh, sometimes when I'm listening to someone tell me, uh, you know, their problem, their troubles. Uh, and I try to keep this to myself. 
But sometimes when I sit and I listen to people tell me their troubles, I think this. Listen, you're not going to live that much longer anyway. Just tough it out. Oh, pastor, my husband is, is terrible. Well, you're not going to live much longer. Just tough it out. Well, pastor, this is a problem in that. And you know, it doesn't matter if you're 10 or 100. It's still true, right? You're not going to live that much longer anyway. Now, now that, that bothers some people. And I know for some people that will be the only line in the entire sermon you remember. <laughs> but that's what he says to the church at Smyrna. They said, it's bad, Jesus, it's bad, we don't know. And Jesus said, yeah, it is bad, and it's going to get worse. But you're not going to live that long anyway. Heaven awaits you. Heaven is perfect. You'll be sinless. You, you will be in the presence of God, no pain, no suffering. You'll see the glory of God. It will last forever and ever and ever. You're not going to live that much longer anyway. Now, I, I don't want you just to... Uh, have a who cares attitude in life. I want you to know joy and peace. I want you to have a happy marriage. I, 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 I want you to, to, to live the abundant Christian life. Absolutely. But, but, but too many times people are giving up on their marriages and people are giving up on Jesus and people are giving up on their ministry and people are, people are just giving up because it's hard. Listen, I know it's hard and it may get worse, he says, but it's not that much longer and it'll be worth it when the plane lands in Hawaii, right? It'll be worth it. He says right, at the, right in the middle of verse 10, after he says 10 days, he says, be faithful to the point of death. Just be faithful. In our culture today, we think that we ought to be happy from the moment we're born to the moment we die. And listen, I'm in favor of happiness. <laughs> I don't want to choose something else. But that view that we ought to do whatever we have to do to be happy, that we deserve to be happy from the moment we're born to the moment we die, that is not the biblical way to live. That is not what God has promised us. Life's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be dark sometimes but it won't last too long. Let's stay faithful to the end. And then one last thing. I believe Jesus is saying, when you get here, when you get here, I have something for you. Now look at the last part of verse 10. He says, be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, the crown, which is life. This is not talking about a piece of jewelry. Uh, just get that whole idea out of your mind. I know people hold on to that. I don't want a piece of jewelry. I want life. I want life with Jesus. I want sinless, holy, beautiful, pain-free, God-focused life. And that's what's promised here. He wouldn't be talking about a golden crown, even if that... Uh, if this were read very literally, and, 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 and this word would have referred to a, uh, a crown that was given to athletes that won the games that took place in Smyrna and in Ephesus and surrounding cities. And, and this crown was really just a, a, 
just a bunch of leaves and vines, just, you know, in a circle, and, and, and it had no value. It just pointed to something else. You were the winner. You were the fastest, the strongest, the whatever. What he tells us here is that, is that if you persevere to the end, you will get a crown, and it is life. It is everlasting life. It is life abundant with me. That's his promise. Now look at the end of verse 11 because he'll say it again. He says it in a, well, he approaches it from the different side. Right at the end of verse 11, he says, the one who conquers, and by the way, conquers there means the one who lasts until the end. Let me explain that. What is it? What is the surest sign that your faith is real? That it lasts until the end. That's what the Bible says over and over and over. That is the, the, the simplest and the surest sign that someone's faith is genuine. In fact, it says if your faith fizzles out, it was never genuine faith. Genuine faith always lasts. And the word here, conqueror, means one who gets to the end. Uh, we're, um, we're in the NFL playoff season, right? And so these teams are playing and they play each other and the winner goes and the winner goes. Do you know who will be the conqueror? Who will be the champion, the Super Bowl champion? The one who at the end of all the playoffs, the one team that has not lost. All you've got to do to be the Super Bowl champion is just to last longer than everybody else before you get a loss, right? If you're the last team, you win. What he says here is if you get all the way to the end, you will win. Now, we don't earn our salvation by getting to the end, but the fact that we get to the end shows us that we, we are children of God. So he says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat. I'm reading the wrong verse. Uh, verse 11. Uh, Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. What in the world is the second death? Some people are thinking, oh, pastor, I was worried enough about the first death. Now there's, a, now there's a second death. Well, there are two deaths. The first death, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. And if you live, um, uh, if, if the Lord does not come back before you die, you'll die. Ten out of ten people die, right? But then there's a second death. And it's described in Revelation 20 and Revelation 21. I'll read to you one of those descriptions. Revelation 20, 14, and 15. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's two deaths. There's the death that ends this life. The wages of sin is death. We will die unless Jesus Christ comes back before then, and I hope he does. Uh, I believe he will, he will come back soon, the Bible says. Uh, but unless he comes back before we die, we will die, and that will be death number one. But those people who are children of God will never face the second death, the death that leads to hell, the death that leads to, to suffering, the eternal death. See, the opposite of eternal life is not nothingness. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death, the lake of fire. The Bible uses so many words to describe it. And he says, if you're a conqueror, this is what he says to those people that are, that are struggling in Smyrna. If you're a conqueror, if you, will, 
if, if you will trust in the Lord and your faith strong to the end, then you will not be harmed by the second death. So here's Jesus' answer. Let me go back to my little paragraph. When we ask, what should we do when it seems like the whole world is coming apart at the seams, here's what he says. I know about your suffering and I know about your fears. Trust me, I'm in control. The truth is, you're a lot better off than you think. And the suffering and the fears, they won't last much longer. And when you get here, I have something for you. That gives me peace in troubled times. But I do want to share just one thing, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm running long, but I told you that Jesus has an answer. That's the one we focused on and the one we should focus on. But it's interesting that the pastor, the angel of the church of Smyrna, he also answered uh, this, uh, this question. What should we do when the world is falling apart? Uh, so we believe, I believe, that the pastor of the church at Smyrna was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He died in 155 AD as a very old man, uh, by the way, that people would live in those days. We know that when he died, he was pastor right here, the bishop, they called him, of the church at Smyrna. We don't know exactly when he became the pastor, but tradition says that he was appointed pastor by the living apostles, you know, the, the apostles you read about in the Bible. So if that's the case, then when John wrote his letter, when Jesus gave John the letter and John wrote it down, this letter we've read, four verses, this letter was delivered to the pastor, to the angel of the church, and his name was Polycarp. Now, why is that? Why do we care? Now, two things. One is Polycarp is most known for spending his life fighting Gnosticism. Now, we heard about Gnosticism a couple of weeks ago. We had a guest speaker, uh, Ryan Burchett, talked to us about Gnosticism. Uh, and, and, and really, this is what you need to know. It represented the culture twisting and denying uh, the, the truth of God. And so in a sense, in that sense, we face Gnosticism today, right? Very similar. Uh, our time, our country, Smyrna. And so that's what he spent his life doing. But at the end of his life, he was arrested because he refused to worship the emperor. And so they arrested him. They took him to the local uh, uh, leader, the proconsul. His name was Stadius uh, Quadratus. And he was interrogated. And we know because it was uh, written down, we actually have that ancient document where this was recorded. Uh, we know that he answered uh, the questions of his, uh, of his accuser um, just very calmly. And then uh, the proconsul began to threaten him. He said, if you will not say Caesar is Lord, if you will not bow down and worship the emperor, then I'm going to kill you. I am going to set you on fire. I'm going to burn you to death right here. And you know what Polycarp said? What's taking you so long? <laughs> and so the soldiers grabbed him and they took him out to where they had burned so many other Christians. And they had their pyre, their place where they would set people on fire. And they had a pole in the middle. And they began to tie Polycarp to the pole. And this is what he said. 
He said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved and without the security you desire from the nails. And he stood tall on top of the pyre, unbound. And they set it on fire and those standing around said that he sung praises to the Lord till the fire took his breath. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, when Jesus said, I know it's bad and it may get worse, well, he was right. He was right. But the Christians who took this message, they said that no matter what happens, I have such confidence in God that I will persevere to the end. Polycarp said, you can do whatever you want to do to me. I will not give up because he waits for me in heaven. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed this morning. I know there are questions hard to answer. There, there are difficulties. There are fears. But there's hope too. And you know, I'm a pretty analytical person and when I'm fearful or I don't understand something, I just need an answer. But what I learned from this is sometimes what I need is not an answer. Sometimes what I need is just a renewed focus on the Lord. I think that's what we all need. I think in America right now, that's what we need, a renewed focus on the Lord. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you put your trust in him? Have you been adopted into his family? Has there been a time when you've said, Lord, I know I'm guilty of sin. My only hope is what Jesus did. And I surrender to you and I trust you to save me, forgive me, and change my life. That's where it begins. We can help you with that. When the service concludes in both services, there'll be people in the front. You can just step forward as others are singing and say, hey, I want to put my trust in Christ. And they are ready, eager to help you do that. Won't ask you to say anything or embarrass you, but privately they'll, they'll help you do that. But you know, so many of us, we, we know we're children of God. We, we, we don't question that. That's not the issue today. But still we're fearful. Still we have these questions that perplex us. Still it's painful. So what do we do? Let's just hold tight to Jesus. It's not that much longer. We're a whole lot better off than we think. And Jesus is trustworthy. Father, thank you that Jesus knows and that I can lean on him. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together in both services.